you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Welcome to this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Each week, I scan through the hundreds of questions submitted by you, our listeners, and pull out some that are uniquely interesting, and not just to a particular person, but the kind of things that can help all of us move to higher levels of success. This week's show is going to be no exception. So we got some great things to look at this week. Here's some of the questions we're going to be dealing with. Can I live up to my potential as an employee? Now, a lot of times I may give the impression that in order to do everything you want to do, you have to be some raving entrepreneur. We're going to kind of look at that. I need to be called out on that because I don't really believe that. Here's a guy who says, I put my resume on coffee bags and immediately got two interviews. What a cool deal. Hey, now's the time to be creative. You don't have to stay inside the lines. Keep your place When you're standing behind the other kids waiting for a drink at the drinking fountain, color inside the lines, boy, now's the time to get creative. And this guy did it. It's a cool story. I'll tell you about that. Dan, your comments about the Occupy Wall Street movement sounded to me like quit complaining and get out there. I have mixed feelings about that. Dan, I have a sales opportunity that requires making 40 to 50 calls a day, phone calls. I keep telling myself I can do it, but I don't. And the job I'm at is so frustrating that it takes all my creative energy away. I have nothing left to build my side business. Well, we're going to be talking about those and more. You know, these are changing times, trying times, just like they've always been. As I look back in history, people always thought we were in trying times. And you look back, even in our own short history, to the times just coming out of the Depression, you think we got problems now? You think we're in a recession Golly, it's nothing like back then. The opportunities now are phenomenal. Well, we're going to be talking about how to take advantage of some of the changes that are taking place right now. Here's our quotation for the day. This comes from Wallace Waddles out of a book called The Science of Getting Rich, written back in 1910. Wallace Waddles said this, the desire for riches is simply the capacity for larger life seeking fulfillment. That which makes you want more money is the same as that which makes the plant grow. It is life seeking fuller expression. I want to comment on that a little bit relative to one of the questions that I ask, and I'll respond to that in just a few minutes here. You know, this week, is November 16th. I'm speaking on November 16th as I am recording this. That's a time when I encourage everybody to have their goals set out for the next year. I always personally have my goals laid out pretty completely by November 15th. So then I can relax during the holidays. I have a clear sense of what's coming, but you know, it's not just a matter of forgetting them then until January 1st, but writing them down, seeing them in a written format There's something almost magical that happens. And it's amazing even to me how much progress I make before January 1st when I lay out the things that I really want to accomplish. I encourage you to do the same. Yesterday, I spoke to a college class at at Mississippi State University. Some of the students, one of the students asked, 
doesn't goal setting then restrict our options? Doesn't it limit us in what we're able to see and perhaps express and do? Well, no, it doesn't. It tends to work the other way. If I get up every morning and just think, well, I'm just going to see kind of what the squeaky wheel is today, see what needs to be done. I'm probably going to have pretty mediocre performance. If I decide in advance, these are the things that are important. I increase dramatically my productivity and ability to contribute. And I release the best gifts that I possibly have. I don't believe that we can just be wandering generalities and do anything extraordinary at all. I don't see that borne out in history or people that I know personally who are just kind of showing up and just kind of getting lucky with doing something significant. Now, I think it comes as a result of setting goals. So I don't feel like goals are restrictive. I don't feel like they take the spontaneity out of life. I don't feel like we supersede uh, God's direction every day by do- having goals. No, I think all of those things are enhanced by identifying where am I now? What am I really prepared and positioned to do? What do I want to do that will stretch me and allow me to go to new levels of success? Setting out goals is a way to do that. Well, here's a, here's a comment from Aaron. This is not a question, but a sharing of something that is just super cool. Aaron says, Dan, I changed jobs six months ago, took a position working for a friend of mine with a locally well-known nonprofit agency. It was a big jump from marketing to an administrative position. And after six months of missing my marketing job, I decided the position was not a good fit for me. I've since turned in my notice and I'm looking to go back into the creative world of marketing and sales. With this six month blemish on my employment history, I decided to put my resume on coffee bags to differentiate myself from the rest of the pack and make me a more desirable candidate. And it's working. One of the companies that received one of my coffee bags has put me through the interview process for not one position, but two. Thanks for all you do, Dan. You're the one who inspired me to find new ways to think outside the box. Send in something other than just a plain old resume and cover letter. Now, I have a picture of it in my hand. I wish I could share it with all of you. But he did literally that on one side. I mean, he made stickers to go on coffee bags. On one side, it's got Killian Coffee Company. His last name is Killian. And he has his picture there, the perfect blend, brewing marketing excellence since 1997. And on the backside, it's got nutrition facts, serving size, one Aaron Killian. Attributes, creative, self-motivated, team player, solid writing, communication, persuasive skills, thrives under pressure and meets and exceeds goals. And he goes on with his attributes, an abbreviated resume, but tailored to being on the back of a coffee bag like it is. I mean, what a great idea. You know, a lot of times people think, well, gee, that's just corny. It's not professional. I'm going to somehow compromise. What a wonderful, upstanding, upright person I am by doing something all creative. Well, you can spend a whole lot of time being convinced nobody's hiring. And especially when you're dealing with sales and marketing as Aaron is. Now, if you want to get in a a position as an accountant, perhaps this would be a little questionable. You need to do something else creative. But here, to get a position in sales and marketing and do something as an example of your creativity, creativity in that particular arena, I mean, that is totally cool. What a great way to do that. Had a guy one time who was also in sales and marketing. He had gotten fired. A friend of mine owns a company he had worked for, and he'd gotten fired with good cause. 
but he's a sales and marketing guy. Is he going to sit around and wring his hands and feel sorry for himself? No, he's going to jump back in the game. So he put his resume together and wrapped it around an ear of corn and had those delivered to about 10 different companies around town. And then he did a takeoff on that. Oh, sure, I'm sure you, you think this is corny, but oh, shucks, just give me, give me your ear for a minute. He did all these things of takeoff on corn. And it was it corny? You better believe it was in every sense of the word. Did he get interviews? Instantly, he got interviews and new opportunities because it stood out from all the others out there. Great example, Aaron. Thanks for sharing that. Catherine from Connecticut says, I've retired from public school teaching. I've started a company tutoring business or computer tutoring business. While that's going well, I feel that I need to make better ways to monetize my talent and passion maybe offering how-to videos or other products, but I'm not sure how to do this or what I could be doing. I would welcome suggestions. I presently have homeschooled children, about 70 of them as clients. Wow, what a great starting point, Catherine. Now, there are two ways to grow any business. Number one, find more customers. Number two, sell more to existing customers. Homeschooled kids are great candidates for all kinds of creative products and services. You know, most of those have parents who are eager and open to things that will enrich their kids' learning experience. So I would encourage you to do just that. You've got 70 homeschool kids already. Make a list of 10 things that they need, 10 products or services that they would be open to. I would go deep in the clientele that you already have. Then get testimonials from them, ask them for referrals, grow your business going deep with the clientele that you already have established a reputation with. Colin from uh, Batavia, New York says a local fiction author has asked me to help her market her book online through blogs, virtual book tours, and social media. I would get $150 a month with the idea that it should take only about three hours per month. I would also get a dollar for every book sold online I would have use of her secretary so could delegate tasks to her. Do you think that's a good arrangement? Golly, I think that sounds like a marvelous arrangement. I mean, what you're describing is you're going to get $50 an hour plus a very reasonable commission. I mean, getting a dollar a book on books sold, I mean, I would have to think long and hard about promising somebody who just helped me with marketing efforts, get a dollar a book for every book sold. That's a big, big chunk. So I think it sounds great. I mean, we have virtual assistants for all kinds of things. We have, we have a virtual assistant for exactly the same kind of thing you're describing. Now we contract with her for roughly six hours a week. So that's going to be 24, 25 hours a month as opposed to three. Um, but we've got built in bonuses for her. But what you're describing is a, is a really sweet deal where you're going to get $150 a month for three hours of your expertise, then plus a dollar a book for every book sold. Yeah, that sounds like a great deal. Just move forward with that. Have fun. All right. Now here, you know, here's one that um, I'm going to spend a little more time on. This is one I have really been avoiding this issue. I know I mentioned apparently last week or a week ago, uh, some reference to the Occupy Wall Street. And this comes from Aaron in Nashville, Tennessee, who says, first off, I'm a huge fan. In the last podcast, you talked about the Occupy Wall Street movement in terms that sounded to me like quit complaining and get out there. I have mixed feelings about it. 
Another way to look at it might be to frame it in these terms. Okay, so there's a huge income inequality. Life is hugely unfair. And depending on your race, background, whatever the deck is stacked totally against you, I got it. So now what are you going to do by this? I don't mean the big society, you, but you personally, this is one of the big takeaways that I get from your work. Supporting social change for the better is good. Doing something to take power over your own life is better. Your thoughts. Thanks again, Aaron. Well, my, my challenge with the Occupy Wall Street group is how is this a solution to anything? I mean, what are you really proposing that's going to make the world a better place? That's going to improve your position and improve the lives of other people. You know, this is a huge inequality. What are you going to do? And what are you going to do that makes everybody's lives better? I'm not a real fan of saying, well, your life is great. My life sucks. So I want your life to suck too. And then I'm going to feel better about it. What kind of solution is that? I mean, I think we can have really two options in some of the issues that the Occupy Wall Streeters seem to be bellyaching about. I can demand that Bill Gates give me a lot of his money. Well, let's, let's just say that he has $1,000 and I have none. So if I take $500 from Bill Gates, and now we both have $500, have I really helped him? Have I really helped myself? Have I made the world a better place? I think the answer to all of those is no. What if instead of that, here's another possibility. What if instead of that, I watch him, I learn from him. I ask him questions so that next year he has $2,000 instead of 1,000. But now I have a thousand dollars because I've been doing things that have more value. See, creating money is not a zero sum game, meaning there's only so much. So if, you know, Oprah gets $40 million, there's less for me. That's not the way money is created. Money is created through exchanges where everyone wins. I mean, if I sell you a book for $10, does that mean that now I'm richer and you're poorer? Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, the $10 isn't going to change my financial future a whole lot. It may buy a couple cans of soup for my family. But the book may open up your eyes to some opportunities that increase your wealth by $10,000 next year. And if that happens, I'm not going to come back and say, I want you to give me, you know, half of that. I'm going to be your biggest fan. I'm going to be delighted that you gave me $10 and you went out and made $10,000 as a result of that. Now, the Occupy Wall Streeters say they're speaking for the 99%. Which group was Sam Walton in when he started his one little store in Bentonville, Arkansas? Was he part of the 99% or part of the 1%? Well, obviously he was part of the 99%. He just did some things that may have moved him across the bridge, but he did the same kind of things that are available to anyone else. Right now, I just started reading Blake McCoskey's book, Start Something That Matters. Blake started Tom's Shoes. I've Certainly you're familiar with that. He was visiting Argentina just as a tourist and saw all the little kids running around with no shoes. Not only were they damaging their feet, but they were exposing themselves to a lot of illnesses that come through the soles of their feet with no protection. So he had an idea of starting a shoe company. So with very modest shoes at very reasonable prices where every time someone bought a pair of shoes, another pair would be given to a needy kid. Now, that little business now generates millions and millions of dollars. Did Blake start as a privileged part of the 1%? No, he started with nothing. 
and grew his idea into something meaningful and profitable. So I think we all have the potential to do more, to do something meaningful and profitable. No one benefits from stealing from one person and giving it to another. Now, I know we glamorize that with old Robin Hood movies, I suppose, and somehow think it's cool to do that. But in reality, nobody wins with that kind of thing. I mean, the, the one stolen from is going to resent it and ultimately quit doing something extraordinary. I mean, if you're doing really well, and then the government or whoever shows up and says, well, you're doing really well, so we're going to take what you've get, gotten, what you've earned, what you've created, we're going to take that away and give it to these poor people over here who have nothing. No, they'll end up resenting it and just stop doing it. Why would they continue being productive if it's just going to be taken away unreasonably? And the one given to will miss the learning and personal growth that comes from the process of creating. You know, the most effective and long lasting way we have to cripple people is to give something to them that they had no hand in creating. I mean, you go walk through government housing and look at the generations of people that we've created by giving them things they had no hand in creating. Have we helped them? No, we have stripped them of self-esteem, positive self-worth. We've crippled them of tapping into their talents to do something else. We've done that not only here, but around the world. And our attempts to help people by taking from the rich and giving to the poor, everybody suffers and ends up worse off. Well, yeah, I'll get off for the, I'll get off of that. I got a couple other questions today that kind of deal with some of the same issues, though. So we'll just plow through them as they come up. You're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. I wrote a book a few years ago titled "48 Days to the Work You Love." That's the title that we use here. Well, that book continues to be a pretty hot topic out there, and I'm grateful for that. Just this last month. The Washington Post chose 48 Days to the Working Love as their book of the month. They choose 12 books out of, of the year, out of the year, from the 1 million books published in any given year, and chose that book that's been around for a little while now, but I'm honored to have done that. Did a, a live webcast with them just the other day, responding to their listeners and viewers, questions about the principles in there. If you got a question for us here, you can submit that. Just go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link, and you'll see a little place there where you can ask any question you want. I'd be glad to work that into an upcoming show. Also, let me just remind you about the 48days.net community. Now, that's a community. There's no charge to be involved there. I probably ought to rethink that. You know, sometimes I wonder about this idea of giving things free, if even that's a good idea. But we created an umbrella, so there's no obligation or anything. At this point, there's no charge there. But um, the more I think about it, the more I question that, frankly. I may change that. But uh, that's a growing community. Uh, we now have about 11,000 people, I think, in that community. And these are people who are saying, you know what, I do want to do something. I'm not just going to moan and complain about how bad things are. I'm going to do something. And I've got an idea. I want to take action on it. I want to tap in to the brain power of other people. I want to link arms with other people who are going down the same path I am. That's what the 48days.net community is all about. We'd be delighted to see you show up there. If you're a whiner, complainer, don't waste your time. We'll just eliminate you from the community. Now, I, I mean, I say that in jest, but 
you have to apply. You are automatically accepted in that community. We have a team of people that review your application and decide if you, in fact, do have the same mentality as the kind of people we want in that community. We want that to be full of people who are optimistic, positive, big thinkers, believe the world is their oyster. I mean, we want those kind of people there. And we're not going to let it be diluted by people who are convinced the world is going down the toilet. Well, here's a question from Robert. Now, this is an interesting question. If you've ever felt like you were not good at sales, Robert says, Dan, I enrolled in a monthly program where I get access to sell a web-based product to small retail business owners. I pay a monthly fee. I believe it's a great idea, but when it comes down to it, I can't make the cold calls and don't look forward to making a face-to-face pitch to prospects. The CEO of the company recommends 40 to 50 calls a day, which then lead to two to three appointments a day with a closing ratio of 20 to 40%. I keep telling myself I can do it, but I don't. Do you have any suggestions how I could turn this into a passive sales approach? Uh, I need help. I hate my job. Thought this would be my way out. Robert in California. Well, Robert, if the model for this business opportunity, as you present it, is face-to-face, nose-to-nose, belly-to-belly, or even ear-to-ear selling, and you hate it that much, choose something else. And you don't have to force your way into doing that if that is really distasteful for you. Now, let me comment a little bit about selling, though. I mean, you have apparently recognized that selling removes the ceiling of income potential. A whole lot of people have made themselves extremely wealthy by using principles of selling, but it doesn't have to be done in one way. You don't have to do it nose to nose, face to face. I mean, if you look again at some of the things that we're doing on 48days.net, I mean, as I'm talking, there's a whole lot of deposits being made into my bank account. I'm not on the phone. I'm not out knocking on doors. I'm not showing up, you know, people's offices to ask them to buy my, nothing. It's, it's done in almost a passive way. Now, obviously it's not passive. I don't believe that really works. We do a whole lot of things to stir up activity there, just like this podcast where people then go to 48 days to check out resources and they pull out their credit card and buy things. I mean, that's no secret. And that happens a whole lot of times every day, but it's systems based in how it's positioned now. So I am not calling people. I'm not out knocking on doors at this point, it's systems based. You can do the same kind of thing. You can do that as a very introverted, quiet, shy, analytical, logical kind of person. So you can still sell if you develop systems to do the selling for you. I had a process one time where I was selling advertising in, inside of telephone address books. So I would go to pastor of a church or the CEO of a company. I did it for the Corvette plant up in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I had their information on the front and tell about the organization. And then I went to merchants in the community who wanted to have credibility and exposure inside the ranks of the Corvette manufacturing workers or in a church setting, you know, to members of the church. So I would get the names of people who had already done business with that organization. And I would go out. Now, here was what I would do. I would make a list because I was going to contact 15 people on any given day, 15 people knowing that I was just walking in no appointments or anything. I would not have 15 presentations, but out of that, I would expect to have eight presentations 
Now, these were short presentations for a little advertising concept that was going to promote their business on the inside cover of a book that would be given out to people in this organization. So it would take me two, three minutes to present it. So it wasn't a lengthy presentation, but I wanted to do 15. I'd walk in hoping to catch eight decision makers, make eight presentations. And I knew that I had a 67% closing ratio because I just tracked it. So it wasn't like I'd go out day after day, just wondering what was going to happen. No, I knew that over a given period of time. So over the course of a month, 67% of the doors I knocked on, I was going to make a sale right then. So if you can see past the rejection to how the numbers work for you, you can tolerate a lot. I mean, let's just say that you're selling vacuum cleaners and you know that one out of 23 doors you knock on, they're going to buy and you're going to make a thousand dollars for each sale. So we got enough company history. They know the numbers and they've told you that one out of 23. Now you can knock on one door a day for 23 days, or you could go out this afternoon and knock on 23 doors. Now you don't know if it's going to be door number one, number six, number 11 or 23. You just know the numbers. So you keep on knocking. Now I've done that a whole lot of times in selling. So you can't get too hung up on a personal rejection. You call somebody and they say, what are you nuts? You know, quit bothering me. Don't ever call me again. You're an idiot. I don't care. You have to have thick enough skin to get past that knowing that, okay, boom, he didn't. You're one closer to the person who's going to say yes, and you're going to make a thousand dollars. Now, if you can't do that, if that one rejection just tears you up, don't do this kind of selling. Don't try to force yourself into it. Again, but if you, but I, I have had a lot of experience in this arena where I know the numbers work to my benefit. I don't really spend a whole lot of time concerned about the person who says no, because it's just one more closer. I mean, I used to go out with this little advertising concept and I'd have seven people right in a row say no, you know, don't waste my time, blah, blah, blah. Man, that was no big deal. I used to play games with myself where I used to not eat lunch until I had sold two. Wow, man, if it's 1130, my stomach's gnawing at my esophagus, I'm getting a little hungry and I haven't sold any. And I'm thinking this isn't going to work. No, I just hang on to my formula. I'm not going to eat lunch until I sell two. And if I had seven no's right in a row, that took up a lot of time, but you know what I would believe? I think, Oh my gosh, based on my statistics, the next eight people are going to say yes. And it'd just be like, boom, 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 boom. I mean, that's just the way that it played out. But I was always telling myself now, I am, when I'm selling, I mean, I, I walk into a business confident that that dude standing in there has my money in his pocket. That's the mentality I have. So I don't go in there thinking, oh, how can I trick this guy into something he doesn't want or need? No, he wants what I have. It's my job to show him the benefits of this. And he's going to gladly reach in his pocket and give me money. Well, selling's an exciting thing. Now, here's another, here's another one of these think hard questions. And I'm going to spend a little time working, working through this one. Randy says, you mentioned Wallace Waddle's book, The Science of Getting Rich. I've heard strong negative reaction to such books. Think and Grow Rich specifically among Christians, among believers. And my wife is among them, unfortunately. What's your response to Christians who are antagonistic toward those books? How can I persuade my wife to consider their message? 
And he says, is that a loaded question or what? Yeah, it is. That's a loaded question, Randy. Now, I've been in this playing arena for quite a long period of time. And I've run it into this hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, at the beginning of today's show, I read you that quotation that came from Wallace Waddles. I knew I was going to have this question, and so I kind of set it up. That quotation, again, was, the desire for riches is simply the capacity for larger life-seeking fulfillment. That which makes you want more money is the same as that which makes the plant grow. It is life-seeking for expression. I love that quotation. But there are going to be a lot of people that take exception with that. And certainly, as you say, a lot of people that take exception with this book and with other books out there that seemingly are too much self-help. And that's kind of the question. The question is, how much initiative do we take in our own lives as opposed to just letting God direct our every move? Now, personally, I've never seen you know God show up at the bank to make my mortgage payment or to pay the lawn guys for mowing my grass. I mean, just this morning, I was driving Joanne's car, and I noticed it was low on gas. It was raining like crazy. I pulled into the gas station. Man, I would have loved it if God just showed up and pumped the gas in for me. But no, you know, like always, I had to get out in the rain, pump the gas myself, pull money out of my own pocket to pay for it. Do I think then that we're just all on our own? Certainly not. But how is it then that God helps or equips us? Let's just kind of think through this a minute. If God gave Tim Tebow the talent to play football, what does that mean? What that means is that there was a seed of the talent there, and that seed needed to be nurtured by hours and hours and hours of practice, running in cold weather, getting beat up game after game, getting knocked down. But slowly, that talent was polished, fertilized, watered, developed into something meaningful. Have you ever noticed that even if God allows you to have your dream, you're expected to work to make it happen? I mean, there's nothing you can bring up where I'm going to acknowledge God gave somebody their dream fully developed in its full form while they were just sitting flat-footed. You know, if you're chosen for the football team at your school, then you have to practice to work hard day in and day out to keep your place I mean, if you're accepted into a prestigious college, then you have to study to keep up your grades. Or that college will ask you to leave. Had a friend one time who was asked to continue his education at a level business. What was it? It was phrased really, really funny. Golly, I messed it up. Anyway, they were a higher institution of learning. They asked him to please continue his learning at a lower institution of learning, something like that. But you you don't just get a degree because you were accepted at a prestigious college. You need to put in a lot of time and effort and prove yourself worthy of the end goal. It seems that when dreams are coming true, God requires our part in the process. You know that there's a spiritual life lesson for all of us to gain from seeing what happens in this process. Yes, we can have dreams. Yes, those dreams may come into view, but it requires a clear plan of action on our part. It requires imagination. It desires. It requires desire, hard work, self-discipline, and faith. You know, the life I have today was not merely God's gift to me. 
and to my wife, what we have and are is a result of God's creation having been shaped and molded by human intelligence and hard work. You know, there's an ancient uh, Jewish prayer that they would recite at Passover that goes like this. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this bread to offer, which earth has given and human hands have made. It will become for us the bread of life. Earth has given and human hands have made. Interesting. Now that prayer reveals a powerful spiritual principle. God's gifts are raw materials, not finished products. Think about the most revered sacrament in the church, Holy Communion. Does God give us bread and wine? Why would he ask us to use bread and wine when we can't just go out and pick them up somewhere? I mean, where do you find those in nature? You don't. God gives us wheat. He doesn't make bread. He gives us grapes, not wine. But when we take the raw materials God gives us, we can add our work and give them back to him as an offering. And this is really kind of a picture of the spiritual life for each of us. Each of us has special gifts, whether that's singing, writing, gardening, art, computer skills, selling abilities, teaching others, encouraging others. But whatever our gift is, it's a raw product. It has limited value until we apply the discipline necessary to make it useful to ourselves and others. So our lives then are the bread that we make to offer back to God, the wine we make. We get nothing but rough materials. Life doesn't hand us the finished product. And frankly, life may bring us obstacles or heartache along the way, but ultimately our lives are the bread that we prepare. Our lives are what those around us see as a result of what we've done with those raw materials. So the issue here is balance. Is it all us? No. Is it all God? No. We develop the raw products of what God has given us. That debate about books like The Science of Getting Rich or Think and Grow Rich come from the extreme edges of the faith community. I think we need a healthy balance in recognizing God's provision, but in recognizing our responsibility to step up to the plate. And books like Think and Grow Rich or The Science of Getting Rich emphasize personal responsibilities. And it boggles my mind when I hear Christians push back from that. In essence, saying, no, we have no personal responsibility. Whatever God does, I'm just a pawn in this. I'm just a robot. Really? That's not the way I'm going to live my life. You know, Richard Rohr, I just read one of his books. He's a Franciscan priest. I love his writing, his thinking. Check this out. As it regards prayer, Richard Rohr says, asking for something from God does not mean talking God into it. It means an awakening of the gift within ourselves. Let me just run through that again. That's going to be kind of my motto for the week. Asking for something from God does not mean talking God into it. It means an awakening of the gift within ourselves. Well, this is an ongoing theological discussion. Hopefully not just a confrontation between people, but where we do discuss it, and I'm more than willing to discuss it with anybody, but I certainly, coming from being a poor little farm kid, recognized my partnership with God all these years in developing those seeds of things that he privileged me to be able to enjoy and develop. 
All right, let me move on here. Brad says, Dan, I've enjoyed listening to your podcast, been blessed by your work. I'm asking for your advice because I know you'll be totally honest with me about my future career. I have a passion to make Christian movies and build supporting materials that accompany the movies. But to be honest, my wife and I are not the best business people. I've been gifted in the technical parts of production, but I feel I don't have any skills in marketing. Because I've worked in a Christian ministry for years, I've stayed totally covered up with my responsibilities as a director, even working weekends from time to time with no extra pay. I still want to work in a, in a ministry, but where I am now, I've reached my limit on income five years ago, even though my level of responsibilities have more than tripled over the years. And the stress is literally killing me physically. My wife cleans churches and businesses, but the physical work she does has to come to an end due to health concerns. Together, we're only bringing in around $50,000 with insurance, but with no retirement plan. Do you have any advice? Well, and he has a link to his demo. Brad, you got a beautiful demo, which you've done. I love your, your demo, which is essentially your resume. But he, even there, I want you to take more of a marketing approach. Just showing people what you've done is not enough. You need to have more of a call to action. What do you want people to do if you're getting that demo out there in their hands? I mean, it's just an overview of the work that you've done. How can you help me? What action are you going to take if I give you just a little bit of an open door? I mean, getting a new position is a selling process. Even there, you need to be very strategic and intentional about how you're marketing yourself. You have a product to sell. That product is you. Do that with excellence. Now, the other thing is don't restrict the amazing skills that you have in video and production work to one small audience. What if you could get connected in producing the next Star Wars movie or something out there? So it's not specifically a Christian movie, perhaps, but it's going to have a powerful impact on a lot of people. And they're working with millions of dollars in budgets rather than hundreds And so they're going to pay you, you know, $500,000 for your work because of the skills that you've developed all, all these years. You've been faithful in developing the seeds of a talent that God has given you. Now it's fully developed. You have great skills. The application for that is pretty broad. I would encourage you to look in a broader sense where those skills can be used, where they will be valued and where you will be compensated reasonably as a result of that. Elizabeth from California says, after being a homeschooling mom and stay-at-home wife for the past 20-plus years, I find myself in a new season of life. We lost our home and business. And at 55, I'm working full-time as an office manager. While I'm good at what I do and grateful for the work, we are barely making it. Years ago, I had the opportunity to become a reading instruction specialist and have done this off and on for the past 10 years to young and old with great success. Currently offering my services with a money back guarantee, if not successful. The question is, how do I grow this business with limited resources? I've often had people tell me to go to the schools. However, I have no teaching certificate, nor even a college degree. I would like to eventually expand this to include accent reduction. Okay. Reading instruction specialist. Want to grow your business? Golly, I'm. I'm sorry to hear that 55, you lost your home and business and you are being forced back into the workplace after being a stay-at-home mom for so many years. Um, 
again, I grieve with you for that situation, but you apparently are um, holding your head high saying, these are skills that I have. How can I leverage these? And I think that's a, a correct, healthy, optimistic position to take. What I encourage you to do is rent and watch the movie, The King's Speech. Hopefully you've seen that. You've got to watch this based on what it is you're saying here. There's a beautiful scene in that movie, The King's Speech, where the king confronts his speech coach who's been helping him for a long period of time. And he says, you know, we've discovered you have no degrees, no certificates, no credentials. And a speech coach acknowledges that. Yeah, you're right. I don't. I mean, I started working with people, got results with people. Their lives were transformed. I never took the time to go back and get the credentials and degrees that other people may think that I need. I just get results. People's lives are being changed as a result of working with me. That's what you need. Don't waste your time being concerned about credentials and degrees at this point. If in fact you have the ability to help people with their reading, helping people with their accent reduction, and I love that focus. That's a really cool, unique selling proposition, helping people with accent reduction. I made a call this morning to a, a company. I need an estimate on a new roof. It's raining hard this morning in Franklin, Tennessee, and I've got two little spots here in the sanctuary that remind me I really need to get a new roof put on this building. So I made a couple calls. Well, two of the three calls I made the person who answered the phone, it was very clear what their ethnicity was because of a very strong accent. Now, I'm not one to very quickly make negative conclusions about somebody's work ethic because of that, but it was very distinctive in that it positioned them in one particular way. And I thought, you know what, if they had somebody that answered the phone that was not so clearly pigeonholed in an ethnicity, I'll bet it would change the scope of their business. Anyway, watch the King's speech. You'll be encouraged. Position yourself as somebody who helps with accent reduction. I think that alone could fill your schedule, give you a really unique, a unique business. And I think from that, then you can do things to leverage it where you can coach people one-on-one. You can do workshops and seminars. You can speak at civic organizations and do fun kind of demonstrations of how an accent changes people's perception of you. You can create audio products, instructional manuals. You can do everything you want to do based on just leveraging that one unique skill that you have. Let me know, keep you posted when you do that. I think that's a really cool starting point. Well, again, I'm Dan Miller, uh, your host here on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. If you've got a question you'd like to have addressed here, just go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link, and you can shoot a question in here. Let me grab a just a couple more here. Corey, Corey from Indianapolis, Indiana says, um, I've heard you talk about a guy who took an empty warehouse and leased out space to sell antiques. I'd like to take this same model and apply it to brewing beer. I would take an empty space for lease, divide up the spots and provide a space to brew your own beer. Maybe provide some of the equipment, maybe get sponsors, host group parties, bachelor parties, and so on. I do see some setbacks, though, with alcohol being involved, liquor licenses, etc. What do you think about this idea? I think it's a cool idea. Yeah, I described where I worked with a gentleman who wanted to be in the antique business, didn't have any money. So he got an option on a warehouse with the option, went out and pre-leased 72 spaces in there, keeping four spaces for himself, 
the first and last month's rent on those spaces provided him a big chunk of cash where he went in and then did the improvements, finalized the lease option, finalized the lease with the option he had, went in, did improvements, opened, and was profitable from day one. That's a concept you can use in a whole lot of different applications. So if you want to lease a warehouse and then divide up small spaces where people uh, do their own brewing in those spaces, yeah, I think it's a very legitimate business model. I think there's, there's a lot of fun synergy that could be had. People who have the same common interest, they can do that. In terms of the licenses and all, now you'll have to check you're in Indianapolis, Indiana. You'll just have to check with the licensing that are going to be primarily state laws regarding this. And the real issue is any, there, there was laws. I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with this. I know that back in 1978, president Jimmy Carter signed a law, which meant that there was an exemption for taxation for beer brewed at home or for personal family use. That's really part of the issue you're going to run into here is whether or not anyone wants to sell the beer they're making or just make it for their own use. And I think if they just want to come together and make it for their own use, you've got pretty well just an open blanket ticket there. You can go and do that, but just check, don't invest time and energy and money into this process before you are extremely clear what the legal laws are in your state and city. Here's a question from Jessica. You know, and I may, I, I think I'll probably end with this one. It's going to be the last one for today. This is from Jessica who says, Dan, I love your philosophy and how you present it with thought and respect. That is why of all the inspirational materials I read and listen, I read and listen to, I'm sending this question to you in the current materials, living up to your potential always seems to speak only to entrepreneurs. Even you speak of teachers leaving the system to find other ways of making money. As one example, I submit that many great achievements happen through large entities, hospitals, software corporations, etc. I admire the startups and dreamers as much as anyone, but are there any resources for living out our potential within an institution? Specifically, I work in medical research, the collection, collaboration of many, many people make new drugs and therapies possible. I enjoy my job. Is that a problem? Am I too trading time for money if I'm happy being a part of making people live longer and better? Jessica, I absolutely love your question and I need to be called out on this. I'm sure that I give the impression too many times that everyone should be a free spirit, find their unique passion and do something totally non-traditional and creative I do emphasize that because so many people are living beneath their potential and furthermore claiming to be trapped there and limited from doing anything else. I want to scream. That's not true. No one is trapped. You have all kinds of possibilities. And if being in a traditional job is limiting you in doing what you really have the potential to do, by all means, get out, do something else. But the question then is, have you defined your calling? Are you living out your passion? Is your work an authentic fit? And you're absolutely right. All of those things can be true in an employee position. I mean, I've seen people in prisons who are doing all of those. And so, no, it doesn't, by definition, require that you have to become an entrepreneur to be living up to your potential. I mean, 
theoretically, you can be a slave. You can be an indentured servant. You can be a volunteer, an employee, an independent contractor, a business owner, or an entrepreneur. You just have to ask, am I in fact living up to my potential? If you can do that, you're with a team that you really enjoy. You believe in the mission of the company. You're being compensated well. Fantastic. Absolutely. You need to stay exactly where you are. I certainly apologize for making it appear at any given time that I think everybody ought to become an entrepreneur. That is absolutely not true. So thanks for calling me out on this. I mean, seriously, thanks for calling me out on that and for giving me a chance to clarify. Well, we've been taking care of business as you hear here in the background. This is Dan Meller, your host on 48 Days Online Radio. Again, you can shoot a question in. Just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. I'm delighted to have you as part of this growing community where people really are finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. We're heading into the end of the year. Make sure you've got your goals set so you know you decide in advance what 2012 is going to look like for you.